My conversation today is with Alison Chikoski, practitioner, author, and founder of the brand Practical Occult, which specializes in spellwork and the production of implements and items for ritual and spellcraft. As a magical entrepreneur, Allison draws from a broad background of rigorously studied ancient arts, leveraging the systems of the past for practical modern use. We sat down to discuss some of her latest work, perspectives on magic, working with the Greek magical papyri or PGM, and more. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. kind of dove into the PGM stuff and, and, and found your niche there, huh? You know, I love the PGM because it's, uh, it really is shrouded in mystery. Uh And in that mystery, there's real thaumaturgy, you know, real miracle working. Mm -hmm. I I just love looking into that. Yeah. And I really, um, I enjoy, you know, some of the stuff that you and I have talked about just because, uh, it is one of the more dense and intimidating manuals to go by you know um if it can even be called that just because of the difference in translation and you know the the fragmentary nature of some of it and um really anytime i took a look at it i was referencing right skinner's techniques of greco-egyptian magic because for me to open up the you know the bets version that i have and look at it i mean i it's difficult to make heads or tails because i mean correct me if i'm wrong but these were essentially kind of like the, the 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 people using these things these would be their personal notes but there's you know is is there commentary as to, or were you just supposed to already know the theory behind it and already be uh, you know uh, well versed yeah so david frankfurter has uh, has some interesting commentary on that about you know who was doing this magic um and uh, and he he wrote about that in ritual expertise in roman egypt and the problem of the category magician mm-hmm um, and uh, so he mentions that a small number of scholars have begun to notice that the PGM is not a random collection of spells, but an anthology of grimoires, of ritual manuals, and that the largest portion of this is made up of a single library, which was the production of a single group of scribes writing in both Demotic Egyptian and Greek, uh, which was found in Thebes and brought up in one group. Um, so in trying to understand the context of the spells in late antique culture, we must therefore look at the context of such ritual libraries, particularly ones found in temple cities like Thebes and written partly in languages impenetrable to the broader Greco-Egyptian populace like Demotic and Old Coptic. Uh, so, so that's actually what we have here. We've got uh, some Old Coptic in uh, PGM 4 which is the text that this comes from. Uh, and it was considered to be uh, part of the magical papyri of Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Julia Sfameni Gasparo uh, wrote about that saying that, in fact, given the nature of the numerous sections that compose it, in which ritual instructions from time to time express the aims that one intends to realize, The first and most obvious conclusion is that if considering the texts, also due to its format as a small and easily handled book, 
as a manual for a magical practitioner, a sort of a handbook suitable for responding all of the needs of his customers. So that's that's specifically about PGM four, which right. is Pyre that we're we're you know we've got the secrets of Helios as a a single spell out of this this broader mm. book. That was very informative. But so to start off, you're the you're the proprietor of uh, Practical Occult. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, so. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you got started? Uh, you know, you and I, we've had a couple of conversations off screen, but um, I don't think I, I don't think we, we ever really talked in depth about how this particular endeavor started. Well, uh, so making magic items was something that I was doing for much longer than I've had practical occult. I started practical occult in, uh, um, you know, like four years ago. Uh, but, uh, so, so I, I probably never would have gone into being a professional sorceress like this if I hadn't been laid off of my career in, in tech and ops in the banking world. So, um, you know, I, I fully thought that I was going to end my days and retire at this company that I'd, I'd been with for so long. Uh, but my whole team got swept up in, in the latest uh, layoffs. And then as I was filling out uh, applications and sending my resume. Uh, every every email that I sent and every every time I sent my resume, I just kind of cringed because I, I really didn't want to put on a suit and get on a train and commute to another city every day and then sit in a cubicle, um, you know, doing stuff that kind of might be worthless, <laughs> like to to the you know, just, just busy work. Uh, so, um, you know, I was, I was still determined to get a job. So I kept sending those resumes, but as I was sending them, folks started to contact me and say, Hey, the stuff that you post about making, can I buy it from you? So, so people reached out to me, um, and, and he asked if they could buy things. And then it, it kind of reached a, a critical mass of, is, is this a profession I could have? Could I, could I, could I keep doing this? And it turns out that the answer was yes. That's excellent. And it's so kind of uh, typical when you think about it, you know, about having all these these plans for your life. And then uh, you just kind of fall into, I guess, you know, sometimes if you lean in and you, and you take that, that leap of faith, I guess, um, and capitalize on the opportunity and, uh, you kind of fall into your life's work, I think, which is, it's really cool. You know, you're very, when you move into traditions such as the ones that we work in, life has a, has a way of reorganizing itself over time. It's uh, it's absolutely true. And this is something that I've, uh, I've I definitely noticed with um, planetary magic, especially uh, of, of um, you know, which I, I also do. I do the Solomonic Pentacles and, uh, you know, things like that. Um, but when you do that sort of magic and you're working with these universal forces and bringing them into your life, um, they tend to remove obstacles. So that sounds all well and good, but what if your obstacle is your job that's actually <laughs> holding you back from something that was better? Right. So, so a lot of people will be like, wow, I started doing this magic and my life blew up. You know, my my wife left me. My you know, I got 
fired or like this, that, and the other. And, uh, and it seems, it seems almost like they're cursed, but it, but then if you check back with them, like a year later, they're like, yeah, you know, I, the, the affection had really gone out of my marriage like 20 years ago. And, you know, we were just together because it was what we'd been doing. And I didn't really like my job and I was underpaid and blah, blah, blah. And then, um, all of that stuff had to be removed to make way for what the universe was trying to bring into your life. So I definitely find that um, almost everyone I know who does this sort of magic, uh, and and I'm I'm not even talking about theurgy necessarily. I'm talking about even for practical results, which is what I like to focus on. Uh, that those energies come into your life and. Uh, they're really willing to clear out any old uh, things that need to be cleared out to, to make way for the new. Yeah. And I think that that's something that's very important for anybody that's, you know, potentially interested in walking down a magical path is that um, what you need to understand before you start working with the energies of the elements, the planets, you know, the constellations in particular is that you are making a choice. You're making, you're using your free will to call these things in and and renovate you, you know, uh, regardless of of uh, your your initial intentions. They're they're gonna, as you just said, you know, it doesn't matter if you're doing theurgy, damaturgy, whatever you want to call it. You start working with these things. You're essentially that's an intention that you're expressing, and uh, you know, you are a microcosm. So those, it, those, you know, having any of those present, those, those universal energies, as you, as you very aptly put it, is that uh, it's, it's going to bring to the fore the, 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 that same pattern, that same force inside you. Um, and, you know, there's a disposition that you naturally have, uh, uh, sort of this, this dynamic tension of all those planetary and elemental forces and, uh, and zodiacal forces within your microcosm. And so they're, they're going to react. It's like, it's like something getting inflamed <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. But I think that's, that's a really important point to make to people that are interested in, in, in getting involved in practical magic, because, you know, at least from my experience, it's like there, there's, there's more people every hour that are, that are just getting into this stuff where it's almost like we're living in a little bit of a Renaissance for this, Right. And sometimes I wonder if maybe I uh, magically sabotaged my own job because uh, I, I kept I kept petitioning uh, for more money for my spirits. And um, the nature of my position was that I was salaried. And so I couldn't get any overtime and I didn't have any sort of side job that I could pick up money from. So it was really running into this wall where um, I kept asking spirits for more money and they were like, okay, but you can't do it at this, at this employer. Like, so, so they had to take that away. And now that I have a, um, a you know, I'm self-employed, I've got my own business. Uh, it's really about me and what I want to invest in it, how much time I want to put into marketing how much time I want to put into doing interviews, um, and and put myself out there. So it's uh, it's more self directed, and it really removed that that arbitrary salary cap where it's like this is how much money you make. Period. Right, and that's an important another important thing to note about magic. You know, 
there's um I've heard it I've heard it co- referred to uh, before as the sphere of availability. So so yeah, a lot of people are thinking like th- they have that very I want to say green <laughs> uh, perspective on things like magic, where it's like yes, I'll do the ritual for for money, and it'll come from the place where I'm expecting it, the the most obvious place. But there's that sphere of av- availability, right? If it, if there was a, a hard cap on your on your job. And for instance, you know, maybe, maybe this was part of your life path, you know, and, and it, it kind of redirected you then, then that's, that's exactly what's going to happen. And, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that because it's the same, the reason why I'm in podcasting now and, and making YouTube videos is because I had been making very, very, uh, very strong willed petitions for, for the same reasons. Right. I mean, we live in hard times right now. This is really, it's ridiculous, the cost of living. And, and, um, you know, I just wanted more stability in that department. And yeah, it was, it was the same kind of thing. I kind of got pushed into, into doing this. There was a lot of support and all the stuff just became available for free. I mean, I get this mic for a gift, the camera's a gift. It was just like, just kind of appeared like, here, do this. (laughs) It's funny how, how everything you need can just fall into place like that when you start interacting with these forces. And then, and then you look back and you're like, wow, it's kind of like I've been preparing this for 10 years and I didn't even realize it, you know, because, because you see like your whole trajectory of, you know, seemingly unrelated things that you studied years ago really feed into what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Almost like there's a plan. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, so you're right now, is it correct to assume that you're working within a primarily pagan magical paradigm? I mean, would you consider yourself those things? Is is that how you identify what you do? Is it, is it, uh, you know, is it kind of um, uh, spell crafting? Would you consider yourself a witch or a pagan or is it something else? So I do consider myself uh, personally to be a pagan. Um, my, my business card says sorceress. Um, um, I also answer to witch. Uh, sorceress is actually uh, French for witch, so um, not really much of a difference there. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, I do. I do also work in a Christian paradigm because a lot of the uh, Solomonic magic that I do comes from that paradigm. But uh, that's that's not my personal belief. Uh, though I did. Though I did grow up Protestant. Okay. Yeah. That makes, that makes total sense. Uh, especially, I mean, we can get to this later on, but I'm, I've always been curious, you know, uh, about the, the correlation between things like the Greek magical papyri, which we'll, you know, we'll discuss and, and the, you know, medieval and really Renaissance grimoire traditions. There's, there's a tremendous amount of similarity in those things, you know, the, in terms of, uh, phylactery and the binding and the, the calls, you know, and, and things like that. But, um, you, I, I do want to start right at the beginning with, uh, talking about you, the, the little treatise that you wrote it has a, a translation from the Greek by, by Corey Childs. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And it, it's called the secrets of Helios unlocking the practical uses of PGM four, uh, one, five, nine, six to one, seven, one, five, right. That's, it was recently listed as essential reading in David Rankin's latest work, the Grimoire Encyclopedia. So could you 
before we get into that, could you maybe take a minute to explain the PGM to some listeners that might might be unfamiliar with it? Uh, sure. So the PGM is a collection. Uh, so it, it stands for uh, Papyri Greke Magicae, um, and it's it's usually called the Greek Magical Papyri, um, you know, in, in English. And it's a collection of manuscripts that cover, um, you know, a, a period of, of like 400-ish years. Um, the time period of the texts encompasses about uh, 100 BCE to about 400 CE. So they were penned after Alexander the Great came in and colonized Egypt, mm -hmm. uh, along with much of the Middle East. Um, so his uh, successor, uh, Ptolemy I Soter, uh, was declared pharaoh of Egypt, and uh, that that's the be the end of the uh, Ptolemaic Empire is the beginning of the period that the PGM covers. Um, so you've got all these manuscripts that were written in Greek, uh, but they're Egyptian, and right. it's because uh, you know Greece had come in and and said like, okay, you guys are a colony of of, of ours now. And you have to keep records in Greek. So for administrative purposes, all of the scribes had to learn Greek. And within like 250 years, everything's Greek. Um, so you've got these, uh, these diverse manuscripts that are, you know, they were probably found in different places, but honestly, due to the antiquities trade, we really don't know a lot about them. So, for example, this one, PGM four, it's mm -hmm. uh, it's owned by uh, Bibliothèque Nationale de France, but it's from the collection of Giovanni Anastasi, and it was purchased by the library in 1857. So, before that, they don't really have, you know, it's not like they can say, oh, it was specifically found in this tomb, or you know, this text was found from here because all of that stuff was being looted uh, by colonizers and it was, it was being sold on the open market and eventually it got recognized for what it was and made its way to the hands of museums, which is where it is now. Mm. Um, but, uh, but a lot of, a lot of people think of the PGM as a monolith because it was, translated and packaged together in a series of books. Um, most recently, uh, the Greek magical papyri edited by um, Betts. Right. Uh, but, but it's actually a lot of different texts. Yeah. So that's kind of, that, that was, that seems ambiguous to me st even still, you know, um, I know that we had, we had talked uh, a little bit about, uh, how to orient oneself towards this stuff you know you've got dr skinner on one hand who insists that that the you know his study of of the pgm has yielded this kind of realization on on his part that a lot of it was what he calls the techne which is you know just a craft or a, or a skill um and that these were kind of magicians for hire and then i think that you kind of uh you you introduced me to the idea uh, ideas put forth by uh david frankfurter you know talking about how 
um, a lot of this stuff did come in, in or, or a good portion of it came in one collection from Thebes. And so there's evidence there to suggest that it they were actual working priests and stuff like that. But what, what do we have any historical data? Because I do understand that you're a scholar. Um, do we have any historical data that points towards like how to how do we contextualize these and somebody who is as familiar with working the material? Have you found it better to view them as a cohesive whole or a collection? Uh, so I view it as a collection and uh, and and just a, a little disclaimer about my self-identification as a scholar. I'm, I'm an amateur scholar, so I, uh, I don't have an Egyptology degree uh, and I do I do lean on, um, you know, folks like Jan Asman and uh, David Frankfurter and folks like mm -hmm. that to try to explain uh, religion and theology in, in Egypt. Um, but if you do look at these texts together, which I've spent many years doing, you can definitely see a lot of similar Egyptian theology and also um, like similar magical techniques that just keep coming up. And you'd, you'd mentioned before that there's also similarities with even later grimoires, uh, like the Solomonic magic. And I, and I do believe that in both cases, they they come from priest magic. However, uh, by the fourth century, which was when we have this text, um, and and now whether or not the original original was written in the fourth century, or if this is just we only have the copy of something, and the copy was written in the fourth century, we'll never know. So we could you know the the origins of this are, are shrouded in mystery. But by the fourth century, Thebes, which was a uh, it was a temple city, was no longer receiving state funding because the state at that time was Rome. Mm -hmm. They were a Roman colony, so they weren't getting all the money that they were getting uh, previously. So, I mean, it's it's very plausible that these priests who did have a lot of very practical spells to help their congregation, you know, started doing that as a means to support their, their temples. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And and Thebes is modern day Luxor now at this point. Is that correct? Do I have that? Uh, I, I think <laughs> I, I think so. Just because I, I was there recently, I was in Luxor and I, re I remember over this uh, in May, they're right around my birthday. And um, I remember, uh, I remember that, uh, was trying to figure out where the name Luxor came from. And I think it ends up being, it's, I think it, I think it ended up being Arabic. I'm not really sure, but, but I, I remember going to, uh, you know, the temples, their Karnak temple at Luxor and seeing that, yeah, this is, this was a city that was primarily um, political as a temple city. Whereas you, you go a couple of miles North to, uh, to Dendera. And I mean, one of the most impressive places I've ever been in my life. Um, and I wasn't expecting it. We just kind of randomly ended up there on mother's day, right? The temple to Hathor, the great mother. Uh, and, and it, that was off the beaten track. That was specifically priestcraft, and you can still feel the hecka, you know, it, coming off the walls there. But, um, what I'm interested in is what drew you to working with this particular section of the PGM? Well, it was, 
it was a spell that I do in my practice and I also do professionally because I use it to um, make objects magical, uh, to, to impart the virtues of the sun uh, to an item. Um, and I was, uh, uh, a few years ago, the uh, founder of Astromagia Conference reached out to me, J.D. Kelly, and uh, he asked if I would give a presentation at this new astrological magic conference that they were starting up. And I said, well, I, I, don't, I don't really know that I'm qualified to do that. Um, and he talked me into it. And he said he would really love if I could speak about uh, some of my PGM work. So I, I thought about it and I thought, well, I guess is this is kind of astrological because it's it's related to the sun and, and asking the blessings of the sun. So I was like, OK, well, you know, I'll talk about my experiences with this. But let me do a little extra research to round out my presentation. So as soon as I started to do a little extra research to round out my presentation, I found a gold mine. And, and honestly, that's that's like every time I, I go to research something from the PGM, it's like you scratch the surface a little bit. And you're like, wow, there's there is so much here. Um, so. I am I'm, I'm a part of this this uh, PGM study and practice group on Facebook, and it's got uh, a lot of really great scholars. And, and we've uh, we've got a lot of really, really smart people in there. And we had discussed this spell and a similar spell that's also in the PGM that calls out the forms of the sun in the hours. Um, but those two spells are different. So, so it's like, all right, in the first hour, you've got the form of a cat. And the other one is like, in the first hour, you have the form of a young monkey. Um, so, so we could never really resolve those and, and folks weren't entirely sure what was going on there. But as I started researching the series of 12 animals that are listed in the spell, so it, so it calls on the, the sun and it mentions that the sun has 12 different forms and that each form should grant a boon uh, with the exception of two forms that do not grant anything. Um, so I started looking for the series of these 12 animals and I found that they actually occurred on an artifact. So there's there was a bronze uh, artifact called the Cairo Zodiac or Tabula de Rossi, which has two rings in it with the outer ring being the traditional Zodiac that we're familiar with and the inner ring being these 12 animals that are mentioned in the spell. So with that information, uh, I started researching that artifact and I found that uh, a PGM era astrologer named Tucer or Tucris had written about those 12 animals and referred to them as the Dodecaoro. So looking more into that, uh, I was able to find uh, Franz Boll's work on, on Tucer and it really, it really kind of unlocked the spell for me. And then after the, after I had done the presentation at Astromagia, uh, I decided to to work this into a paper. That's great. Yeah, I've, I, I, in in looking over uh, the publication, 
I was struck by by a couple of different things. So what what I was seeing is probably you know having to do with my particular disposition. What I was seeing was was again exemplary of of that time and of that place, right? Because two cultures as massive as Egypt and and the Hellenistic tradition, you know, the Greek tradition, they can't really come into contact with each other, especially not for five hundred years without influencing each other uh, to a degree where where I think a perfect synthesis happens. Um, and so what I'm finding in in in, in the work uh, is that, you know, there are t- there are Platonic terms that are specific to Greek philosophical cosmology, particularly uh, daimonis, the diamonds, uh, and and the the reference to the sun as the good diamond of the world, and and I'm also seeing a blend with this, you know, this twelvefold uh, this system of the as you say the dodecaoros. Um, in you know the funerary texts of of ancient Egypt, you see twelve gates, twelve hours, things like that. You know, passing through the underworld and coming from the light of day and passing uh, into the underworld by way of the twelve gates, the twelve hours. Kind of this as this. Uh, I want to say right, but I don't know that it is. But it, it, some kind of spell or s- mythic narrative of rebirth which is really interesting to me. And then uh, right at the outset, this is, this is a phenomenon that I, that I love. What's called in are the, uh, the, the, the four winds, the representatives of the four winds. So that's what you, you also find that in like rituals, like the, um, the, the rituals uh, greater and lesser and supreme rituals of the pentagram, the newer iterations, you know, of, of that kind of stuff. They're conflated a lot of the time with the elements, but really what they are is their 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 directions are corresponded to the 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 four winds. Now each of those four winds is corresponded, you know, elementally, you know, by uh by by the early Greeks. But the reason for their disposition is actually based on the winds, not on the the actual elements. The reason why. You know the fire is in the south is because of you know Favonius the su- the southerly wind, uh, Boreas in the north cold and dry etc. So um, you see that, but what's even what even more blows my mind in the Taoist alchemical and and uh, ritual canons, the first thing they do when they want to consecrate a talisman is call in the regents of the four winds. So my mind was kind of blown because here I am seeing it again, you know, in the PGM, and it's uh. It's just really interesting. I thought that was something of note to me that I wanted to mention to you. Something I want to mention about uh, some, how, how some of these techniques are so specific and yet so universal. Um, I went to Thailand a few years ago and uh, spent some time um, briefly hanging out with uh, Peter Jenks of the Thai occult. Uh, and I got a Sakyant and uh, you know, met some of the Ajarns there. And one of the things that I noticed about um, Thai magic, now this Thai magic is not influenced by anything else. So these these Ajarns, uh, a lot of them are very rural. They're not reading up on Western anything. They don't know anything about that stuff. They just know what they were taught, you know, by their teachers, um, things like that. So they have they have some extremely similar techniques like using um, a corpse cloth uh, as a wick of a candle for a necromantic candle spell. And you see that exact thing in the PGM using using it as the wick of a lamp. Wow. 
That's awesome. It's un- it's unbelievable. It's kind of uncanny. Uh, you know that that there is. I think that the the average layperson unfamiliar with this stuff kind of views it as this hocus pocus, but there really is a very fine tuned formula for these things. And that's kind of what I appreciate about what you've got going on. I like that you strike a balance between the academic and the practical, you know. So how does how does working stuff like the PGM differ for you than let's say the grimoire practices or or even you know, other kinds of things that you have done. I'm I'm interested in hearing anything that you may have learned about working with the dodecaoros and and those the different zodiacal kind of animals. Uh, well, as far as the difference between my my practice with um, you know things like Solomonic grimoires and planetary magic versus the PGM, um, I got into uh, you know the the later stuff first. Um, and it was, it was an easier path to tread because other people, so many other people had, had tread that path before. So if I want to say, Hey, I'm trying to make a Solomonic pentacle. There's a lot of people out there who've done that, uh, in our community. Now I, I know, I know it's probably overall, not really a lot of people, but, um, you know, as, as compared to the, the population of earth per se, Right. <laughs> when, you're, when you're talking about like practicing occultists, well, you know, it's Solomonic pentacles are familiar. A lot of people have heard of them. A lot of people have tried them. Um, and you can say, hey, I'm trying to do this. What do I do? But when you get to a lot of the PGM spells, especially like seven or so years ago when I started getting into it, um, you don't have that. So you're you're kind of trying to forge your own path based on um in, in some cases, incomplete records. So when we're looking at the Betts translation, uh, the, the, the edited by Betts translation of the, the PGM, um, we don't see all of the holes that we have in the original manuscripts. So um, in, in the Betts version, you'll see like dot, 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 or whatever. Um, and it's And it's easy to just kind of let your eye pass over it. But when you're looking at the original texts, it'll be like, oh, we are missing the entire right half of this page, you know, mm. or, or something like that. Yeah, know? wow. Or, or wow, it just cuts off mid-page. It looks like it was ripped. Or, oh, there's a big hole right in the center. Yeah. Uh, and we just don't know what those words say. We're guessing. Um, wow. So, so um you know that's that's part of that's part of the challenge of trying to work the PGM, uh, and and also um, as a modern person trying to work this, uh, I remember I went to it was like a PGM study practice group thing. It was it was not affiliated with the Facebook group that I'm an admin of, but it was just a bunch of people who decided that they wanted to. Uh, get together on on uh, a little chat thing and uh, and talk about starting off the PGM. And I was like, oh, cool. Well, I'll I'll join. And this was probably six or seven years ago. Uh-huh. So I get there, and everyone is is just extremely new to it, and they just open up the PGM and start reading. And it's like, oh yes, and sacrifice this falcon, and and do <laughs> this, and like whatever. And everyone was like, oh. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> like what? 
because um you know that's that's how the pgm was there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are not not good to our modern sensibilities like harming animals or things like that but you have to think about the original context of this especially related to egyptian uh the egyptian priesthood um so for example they actually had temples that bred sacred animals for sacrifices. Um, you know, I've, I've looked up some, uh, some academic articles on that, and they've even found them, where it's like, hey, this is the temple of sacred ibises, and if you need to sacrifice a sacred ibis, that's where you go to get your sacred ibis. Mm. Um, so that, that was just part of the culture. Yeah, that that reminds me of um of the 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 cult of Apis in Memphis, where they they raised you know the Apis bull, and and this bull was like a, a the closest thing that they had in their in in ancient society, like a celebrity. <laughs> yeah, and I think I can't remember. I I think at first people were saying that they sacrificed, but now they're saying that they didn't. You know, I've read some literature that says like, no, they they let it die of natural causes. It lived a great life, and like. When the when the Apis bull died, you know, all of Egypt mourned. So it's it, it's really interesting, yeah, the way that they they took care of these things and bred them for 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 uh, religious purposes. It's fascinating. It's, there's kind of something that you mentioned as well. Um, I like that you bring to the fore in 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 your in the treatise um, Secrets of Helios the idea of Heka. You really bring it out and kind of talk about it. Um, and that's something that has been fascinating for me. I know that, you know, uh, you're talking about it in the context where like, yes, um, this was sort of a motive force in the universe. Uh, is that something that you, that it kind of has its own model in your system that you, you kind of understand what you're working with? It, does it have its own philosophy to you? Yes. So, so let me just, uh, start by by quoting Jan Asman about Heka and magic uh, from magic and theology in ancient Egypt as a way to uh, to maybe set the stage for this. Magic in the sense of Heka means an all-pervading coercive power comparable to the laws of nature in its coerciveness and all-pervadingness by which in the beginning the world was made, by which it is daily maintained, and by which mankind is ruled. Magic in the sense of a particular discourse is much more specific. It refers to the exertion of the same coercive power in the personal sphere. So the reason why I quoted that in my, uh, in my treatise is that I feel like that's exactly, exactly what's going on in the spell. You've got um, some historiola talking about creation and, and the sun's role in creation and generation. And then after you've connected to that, that cosmogonic magic, then you're saying, okay, now bring that into my life and, and bless, bless this object that I'm trying to consecrate. And, and one of the ways that I have previously used the spell is, uh, now, now this is not part of the spell from the PGM, but this was me kind of leveraging a little bit of what I knew about Egyptian magic and trying things out. Uh, I've done it at sunset before. And I've said, as the sun sets, 
let the sun set on all of my troubles. And as it rises, let me rise in power. So there's by tying it to something that is guaranteed to happen, the sun is guaranteed to rise. I will assure you that tomorrow the sun will rise and the, and the day after that and the day after that too. So, um, you know, it's, it's saying like with certainty, this result is tied to this result. And, mm -hmm. and in that case where I've used it, I have gotten results in less than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I feel that, uh, that is more of what Heka is about. It's these large universal forces mm. as opposed to um, maybe the smaller ones like you see in folk magic. Right, yeah. That's extremely hermetic. The idea of, of bridging the microcosm and the macrocosm and which scale are we working on? You know, uh, I, I love that. I think that that's actually a really um, brilliant uh way of working practical magic actually um yeah and it, what's interesting to me is when i was um even if you look at like the book of the gates right again the there's 12 gates and so you've got raw on the the solar bark the solar boat and he's traveling through the the, the 12 gates of the the heavens and the underworld and he's got a retinue or like a, an entourage of gods on this on this bark and so your inclusion on that bark or that boat implies that you are, as you say, um, you know, or, or, or as the, from the quote that you read as well, it implies that you are part of the generation and maintenance of uh, creation. And so one of the gods in this particular text is Heka, you know, so it's, it, it really is brilliant the way that they, they viewed magic as a, or Heka as a, as a, a natural force. One thing that I kind of wanted to to veer off a little bit on, I like to get everybody's kind of opinion on this stuff, especially people like yourself that have been doing it for for a long time. What are your opinions on the mainstream of of magic and and how how it's growing and and stuff like that? What what are your feelings on on the direction a lot of this stuff is taking? So it's uh, it's complicated because I feel that the term magic means something different to everyone who uses it these days. Uh, and I often, uh, you will, you will see conversations on social media where people will start off talking about magic and then they will immediately switch to talking about mysticism or spirituality. And they won't even notice that they have changed the subject because to them, it's not a subject change. So, um, that's why I like to use the word thaumaturgy. Uh, for what I do, because there's less confusion as to what I mean. Whereas people, you know, I, if I say like, oh, I'm into results-based magic, they're like, well, everything's a result. You know, I, uh, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, this, this made me feel better. That's results, you know? And I'm like, okay, but that's psychological, you know, or, yeah. you know, they're like, oh, everything's psychological. You just don't know how big your head is. And I'm like, okay, we're having two different conversations here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I ask, you know, because I'm finding that myself as well. Yeah, yeah so, so I, um, I mean, first, first, if you're, if you're going to have a conversation about how magic is going these days, you got to, got to figure out what people mean by that. Um, but what I have noticed is that there, there does seem to be a huge split between people that, uh, you know, kind of want to, 
have more of a nature-based spiritual practice, people that want to apply uh, union archetypes and analysis, you know, to, to help personal growth. And, and then there's this, this other, um, you know, group that I'm in of, of people that are like, oh, wow, you know, these, these people said that you could do this and, um, you know, you can heal people with this and you can, you can do all this. That sounds cool. And, and I don't believe that that's all fake. You know, it's, I feel like a lot of historians and scholars look at folks that practiced ancient magic and they're like, oh yes, you know, those, those confused people, they didn't really know about science and, you know, they're, uh, you know, oh, look what they believed. Ha ha. Um, we know better now, <clears throat> but if you can just put that aside and just maybe go in with an open mind and say like, well, I don't know, let's try this and see what happens. Um, you can be surprised. So, so there's, there's one particular spell in the Greek magical papyri and it's, it's against a scorpion sting. And it's very simple. It's just something that you, you use some symbols that you write down on a piece of papyrus and apply to uh, the sting. So, so years ago, I was, on, uh, I was on Facebook and one of my friends posted that they just got stung by a scorpion when they were moving some wood in their yard. And I was like, hey, can you humor me and uh, do this thing? If they're <laughs> determining that they were still in a lot of pain for it and that they had already sought medical attention. Mm -hmm. um, and, they, and they said that just drawing these symbols on a piece of paper and applying it took the pain down from a seven out of 10 to just a little tingle. Wow. So this, this is just like a random person for my friends list. Mm -hmm. So then after that, I've used it for friends that got uh, bitten by a spider. Um, I uh, used it when I got stung by a bee. Uh, I've given it to other friends who've been stung by bees. And I used it on a child who might have been stung by a jellyfish at the beach. We were unsure. They were very upset. And, and, it, and it was something that stung them. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it worked. And I'm pretty sure that a small child isn't going to, you know, not stop crying if it right. didn't work. You know? Right. Yep. So, so it, it, was, it was more than just, I believe this will work and therefore it's working. I'm giving this to people who don't have that belief um, and, and in fact have quite a lot of skepticism about it and it still works. Yeah. That's the amazing thing about this stuff is that there is, you know, there is a level of, um, you know, you can verify it really. There is, there is an objective uh, component to, to a lot of it, not all of it, but, but to a lot of it. So you recently, uh, you contributed to the the Lou Ellen series um, of zodiacal signs for I think it's it's basically uh, the one you contributed to was Scorpio witch right correct yes that is correct I, my son sign is Scorpio beautiful so he reached out to me to uh, contribute to that yes yeah that's my that's my rising um, so how so were you a contributor or uh, was it just you and him or is there anybody else on or um, did you apply any of the PGM stuff. I, I definitely did not apply any of the PGM stuff. Uh, I was I was asked to write uh, a little biography of a prominent Scorpio, 
And then I, I also wrote a little bit about some, uh, some magical techniques inspired by that prominent Scorpio. Uh, so awesome. Um, cool. Completely different from my usual writing other than that it does have practical techniques in it. And that's really what we can expect from Lou Ellen. So that's excellent. So um, for those listening to our conversation today who might want to learn about uh, a little bit more about the PGM, uh, Western ceremonial traditions of late antiquity, are there any essential texts you might recommend? Of course, you can include anything else, anything that you've written. Well, you've, you've mentioned uh, the techniques of Greco-Egyptian magic by Skinner, which is one of the classic works associated with this. Of course, the uh, Betts edition of the Greek magical papyri is right now critical because it's the only English translation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Hadean Press does have uh, other, other guides to the PGM, including uh, MHH's uh, Necromancy in the PGM. Um, and I'm also eagerly anticipating Brian Alt's Interlinear Magic, Mm. Uh, which should be uh, potentially coming out this year. Excellent, and um, probably the 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 book the the, the text that you were listed in, right? The the essential grimoire, <laughs> the grimoire encyclopedia. Yeah, the the grimoire encyclopedia is uh, is huge and going to contain information about any sort of uh, grimoire magic that you're looking for. So it's it's also got stuff about the uh, the Solomonic magic I do and uh, all the various keys of Solomon, um, in addition to the PGM. So it's a huge, amazing resource. Allison Chikoski, thank you so much for joining me today. I, really, it's a privilege to talk to somebody who's as knowledgeable and dedicated to this stuff as you are. Um, you know, I can tell that you're you have a great passion for it and. Uh, I think that as long as we have people like you working in the field of practical occultism and taking, you know, the the rigorous academic scholarship, um, then we're in pretty good hands. So I, I appreciate uh, all your work, and I'm excited to see everything else that you're going to have for us in the future. Thanks so much. Uh, Corey and I are, are definitely working on uh, another guide and um, have other things in the works.